Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Must be the third quarter in Wisconsin, right? I was going to say. Third or fourth? Uh, start of the fourth quarter from Camp Randall. The song's so good. It is a great song. Now the they have about that game too. Like all the students are singing the words oh, too. Yeah. Well, that's just a they have to jump. mute them down for one part because there's kind of a misogynistic lyric in the beginning of one of the stanzas. But it is a great song. When that song came out, I was like a sophomore in college, so you can bet like all my buddies like walking around wearing their you know like Notre Dame type hats with a clover leaf on it. You know, House of Pain. We were cool, man. We were cool. Um, good morning to you on a Thursday. My name is Jake Quarry. Kevin Bowen here as well. Mark Dykton is the one spinning the hits that you just heard. It is Kevin and Quarry here at 93.5107.5 The Fan. It is not necessarily a good-looking day outside, but this is the time of year where you know in particular that football starts to really matter, right? And big-time matchup for the Colts in that vein coming up this weekend. Philadelphia Eagles, of course, we now know coming off of a loss, but they have a guy, Kevin Undercenter and Jalen Hurts, who, you know, I think there was a lot of question about Jalen Hurts just because in his early years, in particular at Alabama, the thought was that he was a running quarterback first or the mobile quarterback, and uh, he's throwing to NFL-level receivers all the time. And, you know, there were some question marks about what kind of quarterback he was going to be in the NFL, but obviously he's turned out to be a pretty darn good one. But he was one that was in the hopper when, obviously, all teams were drafting, but the Colts were in the quarterback market, right? They were. Uh, that was the same draft that they took Jacob Eason a couple of rounds after Jalen Hurts. And I think of some of these quarterback names the Colts have thought about drafting veterans over the past few years. I would put Hurts at or near the top of the list that Frank Reich and Chris Boward had some definite disagreement on. I think Frank Reich was very intrigued by the idea of Jalen Hurts. And from what I've gathered, Chris Ballard was not. And I think that's putting it lightly. Um, If I remember correctly, maybe it wasn't a great senior bowl for Hurts. I know that's something that Ballard has a lot of interest in and, and, you know, has that as a key evaluation point. But Um, From what I have gathered, that was a strong disagreement between the two parties on how they viewed Jalen Hurts. And just to kind of go over where the Colts were at when Hurts was drafted, uh, that was the 2020 draft. So that would have been in round one, you had Burrow going number one, Tua and Justin Herbert going back-to-back picks there in the top ten. Then you had the Jordan Love pick a little bit later in round one, Jalen Hurts went, I think it was like 50, it was 50 something, like 52 or something in round two. Not another quarterback was taken until Jacob Eason in round four. Um, So if you go back to that round two, the Colts had two picks in round two. One was Michael Pittman at 34. 
One was a little trade-up for Jonathan Taylor at 41. So right now, instead of having Pittman and Taylor, you could have a Pittman and Hertz, or you could have a Taylor and Hertz. Okay, I'm going to be Freudian here. You ready? And I'll use one of my really bad analogies, and I'll make it about me, which is a real strong suit of mine. We've made a lot on this show. I've probably made more on this show than people would like to hear, but about the fact that at the age of 50, I'm taking an introductory algebra class in college. And the reason why is because when I was in college the first go-round, I attempted algebra several times and had to drop it because I was there was no way I was going to pass it. I struggled with it so mightily. And then it became this mental hurdle where even though I knew I needed algebra to graduate, I kept staving it for another day because I just wasn't psychologically, I couldn't put my, my hands around or my head around taking it. Chris Ballard, who I think is a good talent evaluator, and one of his strengths, I think, has been, in a lot of areas, players he's found in the draft. I don't dispute his level of football knowledge. But he has so avoided addressing the draft of a quarterback to the point where he is on record, Kevin, of essentially saying, listen, quarterback, you guys don't realize that's the hardest position to nail. I'm paraphrasing. Um and you guys would, that would be opening the door to just constantly be killed over the quarterback that I take. Is the draft of quarterback Chris Ballard's algebra? Is it the one thing that he has not addressed because, and again, I, I don't mean this as an attack on him at all. In building a football team, there are a billion things you have to do, and he probably does a lot of them well above average. So it's unfair to think that you're going to know and have an acumen for every single aspect of of building a football team. But is the quarterback position and drafting a young quarterback and selecting the right quarterback for your franchise, is that his algebra because it's one area that he's just never been able to put his finger on? Because this is now a second time, Kevin, that we know of that there was a player that he seemingly in his evaluation decided was not a good answer. And in those two cases, he's 0 for 2 in his assessment. Yeah, I would say it's bigger than algebra. Uh, What do you need, 120, 130-some credits to graduate? Yeah. Quarterback would be the equivalent to one class being 80 of those 120, 130 credits. Right. Like, quarterback just matters that much. It gets paid like that in the NFL. It, it can cover up so many things. So I would say it's bigger than just one individual class. But is it a mental hurdle for him? Is it a... Yeah, mental hurdle is probably a good way to put it. Um, and obviously, there's been disagreements. You know, I Chris Bowden had to be convinced a little bit more of Carson Wentz. Um, you know, when you look back on some of these quarterbacks, Matthew Stafford was a guy that Chris Bauer did not think would come to Indianapolis and be a difference maker for this football team. He was turned off by, I think, some of the NFC North history uh, with Ballard being in the Chicago organization. How could you be turned off by that? He was in Detroit where they've won like two playoff games in 30 years. I, I hear you out. And Just he took them to the playoffs. Relaying the message. Um. 
the Justin Fields name is one that we've brought up before. I think there was a, you know, a collaborative interest there. I don't think they felt like Fields would fall. Where did Chicago take a mark? 11, 11 12, something yeah. like that. Um, the Hurts one, I think, is what stings because, Jake, he's sitting right there when you have two second-round picks in that draft. And think back to that 2020 season. Your quarterback was who? To which season? 2020 is Phillip Rivers. That's Rivers, right. So you know. I mean, you that's imagine what I mean. passing the torch from Rivers to Hurts? I mean, that's kind of the – that's what NFL teams are trying to achieve of, like, the veteran – Hand it off to the rookie, you know. Hand it off right. to the to the young guy. Well, that's there. what I mean. Is they they have gone veteran quarterback band aid. I mean, we've obviously talked plenty about this, and I get doing that so long as there is a definitive passing of the torch to an heir apparent. And listen, he's a great story a nice guy and shows some moxie but it is not the norm that a guy that you took in the sixth round is who that player is no so don't tell no, me no, that's no. who it is no. right um and to it, be fair they weren't saying that when ellinger was drafted understood but i think that you know for whatever reason this move this year and again i think people that listen to this program regularly can figure out that i am still bewildered over the ellinger two game thing and i personally think that five years from now it's one of those things we're going to look back on and go did that happen that was really weird like it's not to the level of weird of when Ron Meyer decided for three games he was going to run the wishbone and called Ricky Turner, who was driving a dump truck in Washington somewhere. I love the wishbone so much. I, I Well, you would have loved it when Ricky Turner came here then because he literally like showed up on a Wednesday, was running the wishbone in San Diego on Sunday. The Colts win against the Chargers, and they keep the guy for three weeks, and he's running the wishbone with like Eric Dickerson, and I don't know if it was Owen Gill or Albert Bentley, but... I, you know, it's like, what in the world is going on here? Navy's fullback was just torching Notre Dame on Saturday in the second half, and I was loving it. <laughs> I was like, this is great. The wishbone is impossible to figure uh, out, isn't I was it? Lo- the fullback it, is it, just running right. It was butter. It was just if yeah, you get a through melted butter. If you get a wishbone that is run effectively and like oh. with efficiency, it is the most. Georgia Tech ran it for a long Gorgeous. time. And it was like, oh my goodness. I mean, it was just awful to try to slow down. Now, let's go back to that draft. What pairing would you rather have Michael Pittman and Jalen Hurts or Jonathan Taylor and Jalen Hurts? Positional value is probably something that makes that a little bit more of a debate. Obviously on paper, I think Taylor has definitely been the better pro than Pittman. Obviously Pittman has been pretty good as well, but would you rather pair the young wideout or one of the better backs in the NFL? And then, see, I, I'm, you know me. When it comes to running back, I, Jonathan Taylor's a wonderful player, great player. I still maintain, if your bread and butter is that you have the best running back in the NFL, unless it's Derrick Henry who can just salt, and, and I guess Jonathan Taylor could as well. But Derrick Henry is just such a different back. Um, I, I just I don't know that that. I don't know that having the dynamic running back paired with a quarterback is is what gets you to the top, personally. And remember, when Nick Sirianni took the job in Philly, Jake, there was a lot of question of, 
is Jalen Hurts, you know, it was a Carson Wentz, Jalen Hurts sort of debate about like, hey, you know, what is Philly about to do at the future quarterback spot? And I think Sirianni's belief in Hurts comes from Frank Reich's belief. Um, they very much on the same page on that front. Um, Charles says, Ballard has been apprehensive about drafting a quarterback because he knows once he does, his job is on the clock. Fair. Trevin, I, I, Chris is terrified of drafting a QB because it's a fireable position if you miss on it badly. Probably a lot of truth behind both those comments. I'm telling you, it's his algebra. It's the one where he's like, I know that I need this. I know that I've got to get this right, but I'll do it next time. I'll do it next semester. I'll do it next semester. I remember when I was, I remember IU saying to me, like, uh, you're a, entering your senior year and you're still in the university division. You need to enter the College of Arts and Sciences. You need to take Algebra 100. And I'm like, do I, is it, am I going to get kicked out if I don't take it yet? No, okay. I'll, I'll do it at the very end. It'll be the last class I take. Because I literally had dropped it, I think it was six times. I just kept holding off on it. Because I knew if I took it and I failed, they were going to kill me for it. It's exactly why I I kept staving it. Because I knew that if I took it and it didn't go well, I didn't have a second answer. And that's I, I think that's where he is. And I think he's basically admitted that. Can't say I blame him. I get it. But it is a pretty important position, Kevin. Yeah, I know I've mentioned this before. It just goes against everything Jim Mercer has said about the goal for this franchise of wanting and hoping for multiple Lombardis in a decade. The only avenue to get there, in my opinion, is to try and take that swing at quarterback. I think you're seeing it in Tampa and L.A. right now. They've obviously benefited from a Tom Brady, Matthew Stafford, but even they are not having these, you know, definite Super Bowl runs over over those right. guys' short stays there. It's been you know, much more limited to the one-year experiences of both those teams going to the Super Bowl. All right, uh, we'll continue this conversation with Joel Erickson. Coming up next here, Kevin Corey. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Hi, good morning. Colts Eagles coming up this weekend. We've been talking about this one for a while. Now, as we talked about, maybe with Philly it doesn't have the same oomph to it because they are no longer unblemished, but still pretty big matchup for Indianapolis. Joining us now to talk about exactly that and more from the Indianapolis Star is Joel A. Erickson. He's on the Payless Liquors hotline. Uh, Joel, we'll begin with this, I guess kind of a an obvious or an elementary question, but does the dynamic of this game, I guess, from the Colts' standpoint, or Phillies, either one, change at all because you don't have a team that is coming in unbeaten? Um, I think I think from Phillies' case, I think there's probably a little bit, you know, usually teams get a little bit, uh, if they've been winning a bunch, they get a little bit angry from, uh, from losing for the first time. So I think that there's probably a little bit of that from Philly's standpoint. From a Colts' standpoint, um, I, I don't think it necessarily changes as much that they're not unbeaten. I think that this is still, if if I was just Saturday, I, I'd be saying, you know, this is the team with the best record in the NFL right now. 
Joel, I was talking in the opening segment about this, and I know you were probably traveling back from Vegas. I don't know how much you got to watch the Monday night game. But, yes, the Eagles lost. But I also thought they just got beat up in that game physically. I mean, their defense was on the field for long, long stretches. The 40 minutes of the time of possession for Washington. I think they played north of 80 plays. It seems like on a short week, the physical toll that Philly took, especially defensively, that's where the Colts could have their biggest advantage come Sunday. Yeah, you know, we, uh, sometimes we don't give the short week enough credit in the NFL, and, and I think that it's, it's going to matter this week. You know, like, like you said, 80 plays is a lot. Plus, they, Washington ran the ball like 50 times, I think. Um, so that's, Philadelphia is deep, and they can rotate guys, but that, that's still a lot of plays for any kind of game. And they've got to get themselves back to equilibrium before they get over here. When, Joel, you look back at the Colts' last outing in Las Vegas, you were there. Look, clearly the difference, aside from the coaching change, was the offensive line. I mean, they had a solidarity about them. They were able to do what they wanted to do offensively because they were finally getting protection. I realize they now have a head coach that was a lineman. I can't imagine in four days that all of a sudden made some huge flip of the switch difference. What was... What did you see out of that offensive line that they were doing from a technical standpoint that they did not do in the previous two and a half months? Well, I think one of the things is something that, you know, Quentin Nelson said uh, the week before, you know, they needed to drive people off the ball. I think about Taylor's touchdown run. Fries and and Smith kind of caved in the right side of the line in a way that we haven't seen uh, that happen very much this season. So I think so well blocked. Yeah, that that was that was a that was a big one, and then I think the, the other thing is just maybe, it might not be a technical thing, but it's it's a Will Fries thing. You know, Matt, Matt Pryor has struggled so much at every spot on the line. Uh, Fries has been in there. They started in one game, and it, it must not have gone very well at the time because uh, they they ended up pulling him back out of the starting lineup. So, but this time this time he sort of solidified it. The the one caveat though, and and I I hate to keep bringing this up, but. It's a, it's a, especially from a protection standpoint. That's that's a that's a defensive line that had when they sacked Matt Ryan, whenever whatever quarter that was. That was the first time they got in a sack at thirteen quarters, and they only have ten on the season. So, it, I you want to see them play against somebody like Philly and play well because Philly has like twenty nine sacks and is at the top of the league. It, the, the Raiders are, are the worst pass rush in the league, and I can't get that part of it out of my head. Yeah, Jeff Saturday needs to see if he can petition the league to get the Raiders on the schedule more here to close out the season. Joel A. Erickson from the Indianapolis Star, he's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. I want to go back to kind of the big news earlier in the week, and that would be Shaquille Leonard's second back surgery. Um, we have a lot of questions, I think, coming out of that news. We, we talked about it a little bit more on yesterday's show, Joel. Um, curious, like, what questions you have, whether it's Leonard-related the free agents at linebacker this year, maybe how that position is viewed if Gus Bradley and or Chris Ballard are not necessarily here next season. What questions do you have about Leonard's season coming to a close? Yeah, you, you hit on the first one right there is, is what is this, what does this picture look like um, for the Colts after this season is over? What, what are they looking for? Um, what's what's the defense look like now with with Leonard's contract? I, I don't think that, that that changes. But in terms of the linebacker positions, you need to have a framework to know exactly what um, 
to, to know exactly what the team's going to do in the offseason. If, if Bradley's not here, um, if Ballard's not here, all of that stuff changes. Uh, Bobby Okereke is going to be a free agent, so you figure, I mean, generally right now, you'd figure the way Zaire Franklin's playing, you probably just let Okereke move on and and then you, you go with Leonard But if, if he's healthy, but it, you need to know what's going on with the rest of the, with, with the defensive coordinator position, all that stuff. I, I think the other question, and this is stuff that is, is honestly hard to answer. I, I don't know if I've ever covered a uh, an, uh, an issue like this with nerves in the back and, and stuff like that is is you know what what how how you know is this is this the final surgery you know it's been a lot now for him um, what what are the chances of this working we, that's all the stuff that we don't know and can't really know I mean I I, I have no history with a, a, a nerve in a back uh, like that that to, to go on and that makes it I think that's what that's probably what makes it hardest for the Colts for Leonard and for everyone. It's just, this isn't something that we end up dealing with a lot in, in sports where, where there's, it's a nerve, a nerve issue in the back. Could you see, um, EJ speed getting kind of a starting type of contract offer and free agency? I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, EJ, EJ speeds a guy who, uh, hasn't played a ton and linebackers generally, uh, don't make, a ton on the free agent market anyway. I mean, think about like what Anthony Walker's got in the last couple of years. Uh, and that was a guy who had, I think 300 tackle season. So, um, I, I don't think he would get a starting deal. Um, that'd be a pretty big jump in a market that tends to be sort of depressed. Well, a linebacker market tends to be kind of depressed compared to other positions. Joel Erickson is our guest. He's on the Payless Liquors hotline. Joe, in terms of, the Jeff Saturday change. I mean, we've made a lot about it. We've had plenty of time now to absorb it. There are those, myself included to an extent, that are curious to see whether or not this was just, and I've heard a lot of people that played the game talk about this, that you get kind of a short-term boost of energy, of excitement, of rally, of camaraderie, and then reality kicks back in again and you realize that you're mired in a season that has been frustrating. Which way do you think it goes now? Because having the Raiders, to your point, you know the Raiders as an opponent probably helped out the situation in the in the outset. But but do you think it maintains? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's the hard question. And and realistically, it it has to maintain uh, pretty strongly because uh, the schedule gets harder from here on out. I don't know if we realize that when we're coming into this season, but you know, there's there's a bunch of teams that are fighting for playoff positioning coming up on the schedule teams that have been pretty good and teams with really good pass rushes. Like I think about like even Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh just got TJ Watt back. And uh, if TJ Watt is at full strength, then Pittsburgh has a good pass rush. So um, we're going to get some, they're going to get tested. And in terms of whether or not they can, they can maintain whatever they had, you know, Saturday himself sort of said the other day that when he was a player, he always thought of like emotions great, but it runs out in like the middle of the first quarter. And then it becomes about execution, and we've we've sort of seen that. You know, that was that's one of the things the players have said is that, you know, Saturday brought a different kind of energy. But there, there's been like four four or five players who, it, well, they've said that have said that it wasn't that Wright didn't bring the energy or the emotion. They they just haven't executed it or it, for whatever reason, whether it's you know talent deficiencies or technique deficiencies, or whatever they haven't executed. 
and I'm I'm with you, Jake. It, it's really hard for me to look at the a Raiders team that is, you know, if you just pay attention to the headlines out there, appears to be in pretty much disarray, and and extrapolate that to the rest of the season. I, I think, you know, but for us to to really feel like it's it's this has changed and turned around, it's it's this Eagles game, it's the Steelers game, and it's like it, it's got to keep happening over and over again. There have been there have been like the, the Jaguars game was a brief respite from what else they've been dealing with the commander's game was a loss but they only gave up one sack like you keep thinking that there's been a couple of one-offs where it looked like they were starting to figure stuff out on the offensive line and then it didn't happen and so that i i just need to see more before i have any idea whether or not this is real or not yeah gotta see the outliers not be outliers where the opponent's dysfunction gifts you things, which has kind of been a common occurrence, I think, in several of these wins this season. Again, Joel A. Erickson from the Stars with us. Joel, we were talking last segment about Jalen Hurts and him being the opposing quarterback this weekend. Um, I don't know if I'll speak for myself. I don't have a great read on kind of the Colts inside the building interest on a lot of the young quarterbacks over the years, but from what I have gathered, there was a bit of a disagreement um, on Jalen Hurts between Chris Boward and Frank Reich. Is that something that you have gathered over the years? Uh, I, I don't have a whole lot on Hurts. I, I, I knew a little, little bit more about some of the first-round guys. But I don't have a whole lot on Hurts. Would Fields have been one of the guys that there was a, like a consensus on? You think? Yeah, Fields. I, they love Justin Fields. That was that was my understanding. Was that the, the organization just as a whole loved Justin Fields? They, he had all of the intangibles and stuff that they liked in like a Sam Ellinger. But then on top of that, they had the mobility and. They, they they really liked him. Um, that's that's one of the guys that I know for sure that they liked. You think of all the first round QBs over the years, that maybe is the one that like would fall into the somewhat realistic category that there could be some regret on. Yeah, I because I, I think I think there's a really easy scenario that plays out where you know if you go back to the end of the 2020 season, they lose that game in Buffalo. The next day, Frank Reich says. I want Philip Rivers back as my quarterback. I mean, definitively. That's that's the most definitive thing he'd said about he said about any of the quarterbacks they had after Luck. Um, and then a couple weeks later, you know, Rivers retires, um, and then that, that that leads to the Wentz mistake, which I think probably is the mistake that that brings down Reich ultimately in the end. Uh, and, and I just keep wondering, you know, could you have talked Philip Rivers into playing one more year? Because if you do. You sign him. Um, honestly, it's probably like twenty-five million. It wouldn't have mattered in terms of the number. Uh, you sign him for one more year, and then you're in that draft that year, and you're sitting one spot behind the Bears, watching Fields fall with a quarterback you like. And that's that's sort of the scenario that I thought that they were trying to go for all along was get somebody to the point where they could opportunistically move up the way Kansas City and Buffalo did when they got Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. And you know that they 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 moved on at quarterback, and they they didn't think Fields was going to fall. I, I keep thinking of that that January February is like the flashpoint where there, there's a there's an alternate universe where Justin Fields sat behind Philip Rivers and learned for a year, and now he's the Colts' starting quarterback. Okay, Joel, I'm going to ask you a couple true false questions. Okay. Okay. True or false? Jim Mersey likes Sam Ellinger. Oh, true. Uh, true or false, Sam Ellinger getting his shot at being the starter was facilitated or 
influenced by Jim Irsay. True. True or false, Chris Ballard has yet to use the draft to take the next franchise quarterback of the Colts in terms of Chris Ballard's definition of that position. Yeah, true. So, with those questions asked... Not a lot of variety there, Jake. All all, all true. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> good point. So, the question... Okay, then I will give you the opportunity for a false. There could be some difference in opinion that could become uncomfortable between Jim Mercer and Chris Ballard on whether or not Chris Ballard should select Sam Ellinger as the quarterback to build around as opposed to still drafting a player that Ballard likes better? Um, In other words, is it possible that Jim Mercer says to Chris Ballard, you don't need to be drafting a quarterback in the next few drafts high up because I believe you have the guy on the roster? I I don't think so after they after he after you know Saturday was about, allowed to move back to Matt Ryan. I think they he wanted to see Sam Ellinger. He did believe in Sam Ellinger. That's that's been true for a long time. He was he brought him up unprompt. He brought Ellinger up unprompted at the owners meeting last year. Uh, I think before that too. Um, but the fact that they let the fact that they let Saturday make his own decision and go back to Matt Ryan is an indicator to me that you know those first two games took a little bit of the this could be the franchise guy out of that. You know, I don't think you, you write off Ellinger at all, but because, you know, the, the Washington game was the kind of game that you'd, you'd like to have from a backup if you had to use one. But, you know, Ursay's Ur- wanted a young quarterback, and I think Ursay understands, Ursay should understand at least, given the history of his franchise, he should understand the, the value of the, the high-round quarterback. Um, and, and so I, I would think that my, my assumption is that, that that's where the organization is heading. Um, I, I'd, I'd be surprised if it's if it's not. Joel, last one for me, and again, Joel A. Erickson is with us here from the Indianapolis Star. Pro Bowl voting is underway. I know a lot of people laugh at it. Uh, players care about being Pro Bowlers, yeah. and I do think it's something where you kind of classified into two groups: guys that are deserving of Pro Bowlers, and then guys that will ultimately be selected to the Pro Bowl, which is kind of a popularity contest. A third fan vote, a third player vote, a third coach vote. Um, deserving Pro Bowl caliber players in this team. Um, I've got Grover Stewart. I've got DeForest Buckner. I could probably be talked into. Stephon Gilmore or Zaire Franklin. Um, agree, disagree. Anyone else you want to throw on that list? I could easily see Quentin Nelson making it just based off of name recognition. And I I don't know. I'd, I'd be lying if I knew what the other guards in the AFC were looking like this season. Uh, anybody else? No, I, I think you've hit the guys that that I would put in there. I, they, I, I just wrote about this uh, to yesterday for today. The, the hardest part... The two the players who played the best on the Colts are both defensive tackles, right? And and there's only three spots for the AFC. And I know, I know Grover Stewart. Um, this is in the story, but like Grover, there there have been players on opposing teams like Max Crosby and Derrick Henry who've been coming up to DeFore, or to Grover Stewart and being like, "Hey, man, people need to talk about you." Like, uh, he he's getting the notice from players around the league, but he also plays nose tackle and he doesn't get a lot of sacks. And you know, he plays right next to a guy who's got um, the Sports Info Solutions has, has Buckner as the fourth most quarterback pressures 
from the defensive tackle position in the entire NFL. And there's two AFC guys who are in front of him, and Quinn Williams and Chris Jones. So that 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 position, I almost feel like that like you should get on a Pro Bowl. You should at least get four to make sure one of those Colts guys get gets it because they're they're different. But Stewart season uh, is has been so dominant, and you you'd have to want recognition that again though that this, that usually goes people who get sacks and if you watch the Colts pass rush at all you're like well it's Buckner and, and then it's everybody else so I, I don't really have anybody else I'm just interested in that defensive tackle thing because I think it's if you watch the Colts every week like we have you're like man these defensive tackles both of them deserve it but like I said there's Jones there's Williams there's right. there's probably Jeffrey Simmons there's a lot of guys in the AFC Cameron Hayward yeah they've got a lot of guys in the AFC who's got a claim and it makes you wonder, you know, can a season that it, Grover Stewart has absolutely played at a Pro Bowl level, can a nose tackle break through all of those three techniques and get a, and get a spot? God, it seems lofty. I mean, the fan vote, no chance he garners attention outside of Indianapolis. Coach vote, you would hope, and then player vote. Again, you would like to think some players, like you said, you know, have recognized it. But at the end of the day, and this is just what um, I think hurt Kenny Moore for several years, Grover Stewart went to Albany State. You know, I, I yeah. watch players vote for Pro Bowlers. They often vote for their collegiate teammates or guys that you know they train with, or you know, guys that they went up against in college. You know, like that sort of angle. If he um, can get on fan radar nationally, if he starts to get some pub, he'll become a regular like fan vote guy. You know why? And I'm not. I'm. I'm not saying this to be funny. His name's Grover. Like once you hear oh, yeah. his name, yeah. you never mm-hmm. forget it, right? Yeah, Joel. If you have another kid, you got to throw Grover on the name list. I know you just had one, so <laughs> uh, yeah. We're I don't think we're going for four, but uh, you know we'll, we'll have to keep Grover in uh, in 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 reserve in case something happens. Just yeah. already uh, erect the wing in Canton for Grover Erickson one day. <laughs> Grover Leaf Erickson. Oh, Leaf. That's good. Yeah. Spell. If he's Grover Leaf Erickson, he's got to play for the Vikings, though, right? Sure. I mean, blue right. and purple, right? right? I can just see the eye black under his eyes right now. <laughs> Joel A. Erickson uh, with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. Joel, as always, thank you for the time. Congrats on the somewhat newborn, and i uh, see you in a few hours. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Scott Agnes from Fieldhouse Files is with us now to recap Last night, the Pacers moving to 7-6 and six on the season. They are above 500 for the first time in about 18 months. And we're seeing some consistency out of the big fella, Miles Turner. We have not seen 
arguably throughout his career. Again, Scott joins us now. Scott, I think that's the thing that stands out the most. I mean, obviously, the record is surprising, I think, to virtually everyone. But Turner, ever since that Brooklyn game and really those Woj comments, the Woj podcast comments, he's reached a level of consistency that I think everyone's kind of been waiting for throughout his career. For sure, especially on the rebounding end. That was something going into the season. He he admitted, like, hey, look, I, I, there's ways I can improve, obviously, and this can be one of them. And the fact that, you know, I look up in the second quarter, he's got 12 points and five rebounds, and it ends up with double-digit rebounds. I think that being a center, and now especially being the focal center, I, I think, yeah, there was a, there's a lot of people just on the outside looking in wondering, Hey, look, you're the big. How can you not grab more than, you know, six rebounds? Well, it's not always that simple, especially in years past, because how they used him was the guy that, hey, take out their center, and one of our guys will go get the rebound is how they viewed it. Um, so kind of skewed it a little bit. But, yeah, you got to be impressed, I think, with the feel and, and the, the interest level, activity level, and everything of Miles and what he's doing. It doesn't feel like he's forcing anything, just playing within himself. And I really liked how he's played over the last 10 days. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, or I guess I don't know, so maybe it's more just me asking you. Do you know if the Pacers have ever put a contract extension in front of Miles Turner? Uh, I do not. I don't believe so. My understanding is Miles is very similar to Victor Oladipo's situation in that he wants to get to free agency where he'll become a free agent for the first time and see what that's like and have the opportunity to put, to pick where he wants to go. Yeah. But I don't know for certain, but that's been my understanding. God, it's a dangerous game to play when you think about the trade deadline and all of that. Scott... I was mentioning this earlier. You were there. You know, the Pacers at the beginning of the year basically had like kind of an informal get-together where they essentially set the baseline for those of us that were going to be covering them over the year of, hey, listen, we're going to ask for your patience and we're going to ask you to, and you tell me, Scott, if I'm misquoting here, okay, but they basically said, we're going to ask for your patience because we've got to kind of start back down at the ground floor and build this thing back up and we need our fans to know that so we're asking you guys and gals to have the understanding to relate to our fan base where we're coming from here and the fact that we we know that we're going to lose some games that people are going to be frustrated with and so they set that baseline for all of us i think it was expected and respected truthfully and now here they are and they're playing well do you think that, A, they misjudged how much they needed to rebuild, so to speak, or B, do you think they just realized like, they have a couple of players that are too talented to not accidentally win some games? <laughs> yeah, I think it's more the latter. First of all, yeah, I agree. That was that was my overwhelming takeaway. It's like, hey, look, it's it could be a little bit ugly for a couple weeks, and there might be a good win in winning or two and everything but um you know this is the understanding that we're playing the long game here and trying to um develop players install a culture set a system figure out you know what what they have in some guys like they knew miles turner but you didn't exactly know what you had in tyrese and and i think he's outperformed all expectations the fact that he's leading the league in assists already that he's averaging 20 and 10 
That has been fantastic. How about Buddy Heald? I mean, consistently averaging 20 points per game and knocking in three and four threes per game. Um, there was many times, I mean, in, in years past where it felt like, especially following from afar, where, you know, he, he would have, he would be very hot and cold. He would have a 25 point night and then a night where he might go two of 12 from three, but he was going to keep shooting them type of thing. I think Buddy has been consistently good in his production, for example. So I think it's been a combination of an easier schedule to start. And I mean that both with opponents and days between, for example, the Pacers just had three days between games, whereas the Hornets, they're basically playing every other day with an occasional back to back. So that's one thing that's gone in the Pacers favor. Uh, And then also, I think it's just a matter of guys coming together, guys playing as a team. Um, And also like, did we really expect Andrew Nimhart second round pick to come in and, not just play, you know, 20, 25 minutes per game, but start the last four games? No, I, I don't think so. So I think they're slightly ahead of schedule with the small caveat that this is small sample size right now. So uh, let's see what things look like after that big road trip out west after Thanksgiving um, because I, I think that will really shape maybe more of our opinion if they go 4-2, and 3-3, three and three, or is that a, or excuse me, is that a 2-5 and five trip out west? Yeah, their next five, all against teams under 500. But then after that, like you said, Scott, the longest road trip I can ever remember, seven games out west. Scott Agnes from Fieldhouse Files mentioned it before, but um, does a great piece after each game, just kind of his running thoughts throughout. It's a must-read over there on Fieldhouse Files. Last night with Benedict Matherin, two things stood out to me, Scott. Um, His ability to just kind of bounce back from plays, like – you could watch Matherin for a possession or two. You can be like, "Oh man, you know that was that wasn't great." He, you know, got in the lane and forced something, and then you know, complained to the refs, didn't hustle back, and allowed a layup in the other end. You also could like walk into the kitchen for a minute, and you come back, and Denary's going, eh, "Matherin scored seven points in the last ninety seconds." <laughs> yeah, like his ability yeah. to, I think, bounce back is something like he's got amnesia. Like th- that stands out to me. The other thing too is. And they threw up the graphic last night. No one off the bench has gotten to the foul line more than him this season in the NBA. He didn't show that in Arizona to this level. Those two things I think have stood out to me. The ability to bounce back as a rookie and the ability to just put his head down and consistently get to the foul line. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And even more so his ability to even finish through some of that contact. At least get a shot up even if he doesn't make it give him a chance for a potential three-point play. That was the other thing I didn't really see on the uh, tape that I watched from him at Arizona. He was trying to attack more after, you know, being he was a shooter, and then he tried to attack more, um, but his ability to finish through contact. I was One of the notes on, in there last night is I was surprised. I looked up early, I think, fourth quarter. He only had two free-throw attempts. And then he had four in a row uh, after he had made three straight uh layups there at the basket and so yeah he can score awfully quickly and, and to your point yeah this fact that he's able to rebound whether it was a an off night not a really a bad game but maybe a game he didn't play well and he's only really had one maybe two of those thus far I remember the one where he had eight points and then he bounced back and I think scored something it's something in the 20s the next night but he's just he's been solid in that production and I, I think what he's been able to do while playing off the bench, not pouting, and, and, and owning up to what Car- Coach Carlisle and this Pacers team is demanding of him, 
has been very positive to this point. And that's yet another reason why the Pacers are off to a winning record right now. Scott, we're going to talk a lot about, over the next handful of years, Benedict Matherin and Tyrese Halliburton. That's a given, right? But I'll tell you what, not a lot of people are talking about it, but is Andrew Nimhard all of a sudden starting to show that he is, in fact, not a starter perhaps, but that he is going to be a really nice rotational piece for them for a, for a handful of years here? That's a great point. I think so, and in, in a different way than I was expecting. And that's that. not necessarily, in particular, the exact backup point guard. It's He's playing off ball. And Correct. For example, he didn't just start the game, but he finished the game. Uh, last night, but and you know that, what he does, Scott. You certainly don't expect. You, you know what, and you tell me if, if I'm wrong here. Uh, this is my observation, though. The thing that Andrew Nimhard does, as well as anybody that you could ask as a young player, is play within himself. He has a very mm-hmm. clear understanding of what his role and expectation is, and I think he does a really nice job of playing within those parameters as to not disrupt anything else on the floor. Completely agree. Doesn't get sped up. He's under control, which is not easy for not even just a rookie, but a first year, two year player. Um, because the speed of the game, that's the number one thing when we talk to players that they say changes when you go from college G League to the NBA. It's just, you, you feel like you're flying down the highway. Some might say like an Autobahn uh, out there. And, uh, <laughs> and so. Um, this is this is a situation where Nemhart's just come in, played well, played under control, and you know if he's left open for three, he's absolutely going to take it. He's he's being decisive with it, and that's what Rick wants. But he's also not forcing anything. So yeah, Nemhart's been another big success here in the early going. Have you driven on the Autobahn before? No, not at all. Have you, Kevin? No. Oh, it'd be awesome. No. I mean, I've I've never been to Germany, but just to get a Porsche and just go, hell yeah. I think something scary. Nemhard related that you guys both made good points on. You think about his two years at Gonzaga after he transferred from Florida. You know, one of them, Jalen Suggs, is there. Suggs obviously dominated the ball as he should have, but then Suggs leaves, and last year he's more of the point guard. And I think we've seen that mm-hmm. already. Of like, you know, he's been inserted in the starting lineup, playing a little bit off the ball, um, but you know. Ultimately, he's probably kind of a backup point guard to Tyrese Halliburton in the, in the league. Um, again, Scott Agnes. And, and by the way, those are those aren't easy switches. I think, especially for a new player. No. And so that no. that's what's been so impressive and how he's been able to adapt and, and just you know not act like this is it's too much. He very much re- resembles in the way he carries himself to me as Malcolm Brogdon. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. fascinating. It really is. I think it's good that O'Shea Brissett's getting some minutes right now. I'm sure the injury related a bit, but um, I, I think it's key that he's uh, factored here into kind of that eighth, ninth guy. Yeah, I completely agree. I was thinking about time. That's probably one of the biggest areas where uh, I've disagreed with Rick in terms of the rotation. Maybe the only area is I, I'm just you know to see O'Shea essentially just be set on the bench for the first month. I'm like. There's been a couple nights where they haven't had it, right? And that's going to happen throughout the season. But you need an energy. You need a jolt. You need a guy to just not turn it over and not get in the way, but just you know do the little things. That's O'Shea. And I, I could not figure out why he was out of the rotation. And now that he's back in it, uh, a guy that really didn't play much early on, and you know he comes in, hits a couple quick threes, doesn't get in the way, plays 20 minutes last night's the most he's played all season. And, and you don't, you know, what he's able to do, it's it's those simple little things, and if he can give you a, a good 15-minute spurt in a game, that's exactly what you need. 
Scott, I, I'm going to ask this question legitimately I, because I don't know the answer. So this is not like me suggesting something via a question. Okay, the the level of play that we're seeing from Miles Turner right now is that Miles Turner completely comfortable with and invested in the Pacers and wanting to perhaps play his way into being part of the the solution long term, or is that Miles Turner playing because he knows his contract is coming up and he wants to go elsewhere? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I, I view what he's doing right now is he's playing. He he's comfortable in his own skin, and he had a, a really uh, important, I think, off season for him physically and mentally about what he wants to be about and such. But I think I think this is him playing to potential and ultimately taking advantage of just more of an opportunity. I see this uh, as exactly who he should be. Um, it doesn't have to be, by the way, 20 and 10. I'm more realistically, I thought on a really good team, I see him more as a, you know, 15, 10 and three block guy who could also go for 25 a few nights, but not on average. Um, but the combination, I think, Jake, of the, that the team is playing well, he's got the best point guard he's ever played with. That certainly helps being in a contract year. And we all know he listens to everyone else. So there's certainly a, a, a motivation i think from within to to prove everyone else wrong um that has to be fueling him a little bit and maybe to to kb's point at the beginning um that bad performance in brooklyn was like all right i can't let this happen again it's just the consistency more than anything for me again four straight double doubles i think that's you've seen flashes you've seen you know an outlier you know one-offs you know maybe a couple games but to do it four in a row uh, really important for Miles Turner. Again, Scott Agnes over at Field House Files. Scott, thank you. You bet. Thanks, Scott. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You are listening to Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Colts and Eagles coming up Sunday... Uh, I and Eagle, coincidentally enough, on the call. Joining us now on the Payless Liggers Hotline to talk about exactly that from the city of brotherly love, Dave Zangaro joins us. He's with NBC Sports Philadelphia. Dave, I'm going to get right to this point, and I appreciate your time this morning. Um, You know, we saw, it's been a while, but there was a time in Indianapolis where the Colts often were the last team in the league to lose their first game. And I went back and looked, and you know, oftentimes the game right afterwards, they'd, they'd kind of get hung up. Now, sometimes that was because they were so deep into the year that once the loss was there, they went ahead and rested players. So it's kind of hard to tell. But from your vantage point with the Eagles, short week, but what has been the mindset? Does there appear to be any wind out of their sails now that they have a blemish on their record? Hey, good morning. You know, honestly, uh, you know, after the game, the thing I was most impressed about in the locker room was just how calm everyone was. Uh, not that it was a relief to lose that game, but there was no panic. I mean, obviously they were upset they lost the football game, but 
the way they lost that game was a lot of self-inflicted stuff. So I think they looked at it and said, well, we have all these things to work on, and I, they had the leadership in place. So I don't think it's going to let them spiral at all. You know, I, I think they're kind of a focused team, and uh, that doesn't mean that they're just going to come out and roll off a bunch of wins again, but I, I don't think that's going to be an issue going forward. Dave Zangrano again from NBC Sports covers the Eagles. He's with us on the Payless Lickers Hotline. Before Monday, was the run defense the one question mark for Philly? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a question mark. And it, it was kind of a weird game on Monday night because they gave up 152 yards, but at 3.1 yards a carry. So uh, you can kind of have problems with the run defense, but in another way you can say, all right, well, that's not bad at all, obviously. Um, they're missing Jordan Davis. There's no question. They're, uh, their first-round pick, who was playing really well at that nose tackle position without him, They've been lacking a little bit. It's the reason they went out and, and signed Linval Joseph yesterday. So we'll see how quickly he can get caught up to speed after now playing off season. And you know he's a thirty-four year old, thirty, uh, three hundred thirty-pound guy. So uh, it might not just be as easy as plugging him in. Uh, but it is a concern, uh, especially with who they have on the schedule coming up. Obviously, the Colts are coming off a really big rushing performance. They have the Titans. On the schedule, they have the Giants twice. They have Dallas again. So a, a lot of good running teams as we get into December, which is not a great recipe for a team that has struggled against the run. So it's it's definitely one of the biggest concerns about this team right now. I think the other big news item out of Monday is the injury to Dallas Goddard, one of the better tight ends, particularly after the catch in the league. And I was looking at the Eagles roster, and I thought to myself, you know what? Knowing Nick Sirianni like I know him, I know he's not a tight end, but I almost feel like that injury could mean Zach Pascal all of a sudden takes on a little bit of a bigger role. Sirianni loved Pascal when he was here. Uh, just any thoughts to how they will try and, and replace that and what Pascal, um, kind of his role has been behind, obviously, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith? Yeah, Pascal's really been the four for a lot of the season because they have A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, and Quez Watkins, who has been their slot receiver for a lot of the season. But, yeah, he loves Pascal, obviously. Uh, he too, still does all the dirty work. And uh, you could see him in some sort of a blocking receiver role to, to try to be uh, some sort of replacement for Dallas Goddard. But it's there's no easy replacement for arguably a, a top two, top three tight end in the league. He's been that good this year. So uh, they haven't made any secret about the, you know, the way this passing offense works is it runs through three players, Dallas Goddard, AJ Brown, and Devonte Smith. So now that one of them's gone, I, I think it really just runs through AJ Brown and Devonte. And uh, that's not a, a bad thing. I mean, I, these two guys are very good and there have been times this year where specifically with Devonte, he hasn't seen share of targets. The targets to AJ Brown have been really consistent. The targets to Dallas Goddard have been really consistent. Uh, this might be a chance for Devontae to to really take that year two jump that a lot of people expected, but we know there's only one football and there's limited opportunities. So, uh, you know, their backup tight ends don't have a ton of experience, so I don't think it's as simple as, hey, next man up. It's going to take a lot of different people to fill that void. Dan Zangaro is our guest. He's with NBC Sports Philadelphia. He's on the Payless Sigurds Hotline. Dan, is there any way to know – it's Dave. Or, Dave. Or Dave, I'm sorry. I said damn. My apologies. Um, I couldn't read my own handwriting there, Dave. My apologies. Um, is there any way to know 
with Nick Sirianni, how much of Indianapolis he brought with him? Does that make sense? What I'm asking? Uh, no, I, I don't. I, it's tough for me to say because I wasn't around the team in Indianapolis. I, I do know Frank Reich enough to see some of that influence, right? And, uh, I did, it, just in personnel, he brought a, a lot, right? I mean, he brought Jonathan Gannon with him. He brought Jason Michael with him. Uh, so I think there are some staples, but this is Sirianni's team. It's not, you know, we were kind of curious, is this going to be Frank Reich 2.0? And, and no, I've been really impressed by the offense Sirianni's put together. And the most impressive thing that he's done is that he, and he, it's what he talked about. And we just had to see him actually put it into, uh, put it into the, you know, put, make it work is, is that he's using his offensive players through their strengths. He has a great offensive line. He uses that. He has a good tight end, so he says, okay, he's a focal point of the offense. You go out and get A.J. Brown, obviously he's getting his targets. And they've the offense has grown as Jalen Hurst has grown. You know, when they needed to be a heavy RPO read option team, that's what they did. And as Jalen's become a, a more comfortable pocket passer, the offense has shifted. So uh, he talked about that when he got hired, that the, the mark of a good coach is, conforming to what your players do best. And he's certainly done that in his year and a half here. Dave, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to go back to it a, a little bit. In terms of, you know, Philly getting that first loss, and I thought you raised an interesting point. You know, you almost wonder if sometimes it doesn't, like, take weight off of guys, right? Where they're like, okay, now we got that out of the way. Now let's go to, like, phase two here. But did Washington do anything that, per se, exposed the Eagles? Or was it just a matter of one of those games where – you know, things necessarily didn't fall their way. In other words, does does Indianapolis really scour the tape to see what was done and have an area that is very clear for them to exploit? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think they'd get much from it. It was just a, a really strange game. One of the things the Eagles have been so good at this year was their turnover margin. And in this game, they turned the football over three times. So, you know, some of that is preparation and and repping it, but some of it is kind of just luck, you know. It those things always seem to kind of regress to the mean, and that's what happened on Monday. They had three turnovers all season before that. They had three on Monday night, so uh, I think it'll be tough to look at that Washington game and say, "All right, they figured out the blueprint, so to speak, to beat this team." Uh, I think part of the blueprint was already there, you know. Um, if there's one thing to take away from it. It's that, you know, they had these long drives on offense that uh, worked because they converted a bunch of third downs. I don't know if you'll be able to duplicate that every week. They had 12 third down conversions, which is pretty crazy. I, I just don't think that's a, a sustainable way to run an offense. So uh, teams might try to do that against the Eagles, but I, I, it's hard for me to imagine they'll have the same level of success. Kenny's with NBC Sports, covers the Eagles. Uh, Dave Zangrano is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Dave, a guy that we probably have not talked about enough or should um, is Rodney McLeod, who um, inserted into the starting lineup back in September after rookie Nick Cross struggled, and he's been very steady at the back end of this defense. Um, I know he's got a lot of history with the Eagles. I think a ton of ties to the Philadelphia community as well. Um, he's probably a little bit on the Colts side of things, a chess piece for them this week. I, I would guess Matt Ryan has had his ear a whole lot in just wanting to hear a little bit more about the Eagles personnel, Jonathan Gannon, etc. Uh, what did Rodney McLeod kind of mean to that Eagles defense in his time there? 
He was a huge part of this team. Uh, I don't think they won a Super Bowl without him. He was that vital to that team and uh, one of the greatest guys we've had here. And, you know, he was uh, one of the a joy to cover for me. Um, and he was a really solid player. A lot of times he was overshadowed here because so much of his time was next to Malcolm Jenkins, who was a pro bowler during that run. But Rodney was so steady. And after Malcolm left, he really became the leader of that defense. He, he assumed that role, became a captain, and uh, he was the one getting his team fired up, or at least on the defensive side of the ball, every week. Uh, so he meant a lot to this team. It was kind of a shame when they didn't bring him back, especially when I saw what the contract he got was. I mean, they, they certainly could have afforded it. Uh, they chose to move on, and things are working out for the Eagles, obviously. They're, they're 8-0, but... Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of respect for Rodney McLeod, certainly. Now, Dave, if I'm not mistaken, you know, you have the unique perspective of being, especially in a market the size of Philadelphia, you're a native of the area, correct? I am, yes. Okay, so because, you know, a lot of times in a, in a market that big, you get a lot of the transient stuff. So you'd be the perfect person to ask here. Um, if somebody is going to Philly, like, I think maybe I got a little bit duped when I've, I've been to Philly several times, but. I can't remember which cheesesteak place I went to, but I think it was like the tourist one. Is there one that that if you are a Philly native and you go to get a, a cheesesteak that you know that you're a native because that's the one you're going to and you're you're rolling your eyes at the one that all the tourists go to? Uh, you know, even the tourist spots are still good. I always say that. It's you know, pe- people act in, in the city people act like they have stopped in their favorite cheesesteak place. Exactly. Uh, And look, they're all really good. And it's a personal preference thing. Yes, the the touristy ones are there, but even they put out a good product. So I won't knock them either. All right, fair enough. I can't remember the one. The one I went to was underneath an overpass. That's all I remember, and it was really good. You went to Tony Luke's, yeah. Pat and Gino's across from each other? No, which which is the one I went to, Dave? I'm guessing you went to Tony Luke's. Okay, did I get duped? Is that a big tourist spot? It, kind of, but it's good. It's very good. Yeah. It's, you know, they're all really good. It I'm not going to knock any of them. Yeah. Next time you're in town, go to Angela's. That's my personal favorite. All right, Angela's. So that's what I want. I, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to say, hey, um, this guy that I mispronounced his name was still nice <laughs> enough to tell me this is the place I need to come, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dave, last one from me. Obviously, the Colts are in the midst of looking for a new head coach, and who knows? Maybe it's the guy on the home sidelines this Sunday in Jeff Saturday. Something that impressed me about Nick Sirianni, I thought he'd be a little in over his head. Um, I thought he'd take on play-calling duties, and I thought he'd just be overwhelmed. Um, I thought he did a great job of not doing that, and to me, he's got two attributes that – you know, NFL owners have to really, really like, and that would be a guy that can connect with players right away. He's a dude you want to have a beer with. And then secondly, uh, his offensive mind. You know, even if Shane Steichen, their OC, leaves, you know, you're still going to have that core offense uh, in there. What do you think has made him so successful so early in Philly? Uh, A lot of reasons. I I think you mentioned a few of them. Uh, certainly his offense is the offense, but it goes way beyond that. And I think so many owners get into that trap where they hire the best offensive or defensive mind and they overlook so many of the duties a head coach has. And the Eagles didn't do that. Nick Sirianni is a great communicator. He connects with everyone. And it's interesting because at the beginning of his rookie season, he did call plays and he handed it over to Shane Steichen, which... You know, I don't think a lot of rookie head coaches would do that. There's too much pride involved, uh, and he never let that get to him. And he, he handed over play-calling duties, and it went well. 
So this year, he said, Shane, you're, you're up again. You're doing it. Um, the team has been very good to make sure everyone realizes it's still Nick's offense. He's still heavily involved in, in the game plan, obviously. And then even uh, during the game, it, he's in Shane's year about, you know, the at least the ideas they want to get to. Uh, but Shane's calling the plays, and I, I actually see that as a, a real positive sign for Nick Sirianni that he was humble enough to, to hand that over because I think a lot of young coaches would just be stubborn and they'd say, no, this is why you hired me. I'm going to do this. And he had the foresight not to get uh, boxed in there. All right, Dave, I'm going to do buy one, get one on the way out with you here. Um, I realize Eagles is your primary beat, but in Philly, just through osmosis alone, there's a lot of talk about the Sixers. Joel Embiid, when he's healthy, is an absolute beast. But at 7-7, seven and seven, what's going on with Philly? Yeah, it's been a little disjointed so far. It kind of feels like they're all playing – their own individual game uh, and it's not thinking up right now Harden's out for a while which is a shame because he was playing better very early so once they get him back we'll we'll see how it all kind of meshes but uh, as long as they have him beat I I like their chances to get you know into the playoffs and make a run so we'll see yeah he is an absolute beast man he is a unicorn hell of a player (laughs) he really is Dave appreciate it Dave Zangaro from NBC Sports in Philadelphia and uh, enjoy when you come to Indianapolis for the game I will tell you that the tourists go to St. Elmo but it's pretty darn good anyway so enjoy it if you're going to go there All right. All right. thanks